the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In, In the, the beginning, beginning was the Word, and, and the, the Word was, was with God, God and, and the, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Good evening and welcome to Grace Downtown. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you're here with us. We want to wish you Merry Christmas, and we are glad you're here, glad to spend some time with you uh, before your uh, next Christmas activities. We are finishing up our Advent series as we've been lighting the candles each week. Um, a season of Advent is a time where we look forward to the Lord's second coming by remembering the time he came first. And that's what John 1 is all about, talking about God coming in the flesh. That's what we've been looking at through the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Uh, these verses, 1 through 18, is really a prologue before John jumps in, talking about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He has this prologue, the first 18 verses that set the table for us. And it tells us a lot about the nature and the character of who God is, and it has great importance for us here today. Uh, one of the reasons that it has great importance is because as we look ahead to Christmas Day coming, Christmas is really a mixed bag of emotions when we think about Christmas. When we're kids, it's all goodness, right? Christmas is great. We just go from presents to presents and cookies to cookies and party to party. And it's just all these emotions. I can very quickly go back to the emotions surrounding Christmas as a child. And it was lots of happiness, lots of excitement about what was ahead. You may be like me that you can remember laying in your bed and you're trying to go to sleep on Christmas Eve because you know that will make Christmas morning come faster, but you're so excited you can't sleep. There's certain things for each one of us that just signify, hey, Christmas is here. This is Christmas. As a kid, it's mostly just excitement and happiness and one fun thing to the next. But if you're like me, as you get older, that excitement, that happiness, those emotions can really wane for a number of reasons. Some of it is just getting older, you get a little bit more logical and maybe even a little bit more cynical. Uh, some of it, though, as we get older, is that we start to have new experiences and we start to see that Christmas is a lot of emotions, but it doesn't necessarily fix anything. 
And we start to find happiness to be something that's actually kind of difficult to find. And it's really on a spectrum. For some of us, uh, it's just maybe a difficult or stressful time as maybe we're the parents carting those kids around from thing to thing to thing and then giving them all the sugar or the grandparents give them all the sugar and then they're crazy. Um, it can be stress of those things. It can be the stress and the strain of too much extended family time. Um, it can be because of travel plans and stressors. It could be of circumstances that are going on in our life that have nothing to do with Christmas, but that complicate the Christmas season for us. It can be that we used to experience a sense of home and tradition and memories with Christmas, but now those memories have been shattered or that family has been torn apart. Maybe spending time at with family at Christmas is something that's actually really challenging for you. Or maybe you just wish you had family to spend it with. Christmas comes with a mixed bag of emotions. Tonight, as we open up John 1, we are reflecting on the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. And our kind of big idea, our kind of big idea for what we're talking about here tonight is the fact that Jesus came in the flesh can give you hope and peace for today. A song that we sing around Christmas time is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. This is verse 5 from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And as we look at verse 5, it's really indicative of what the rest of the song is about. It says, O come, thou king of nations, bring an end to all of our suffering. Bid every pain and sorrow cease and reign now as our prince of peace. Each verse in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is full of talking about darkness and pain and suffering and death and the difficult things that we experience as humans. And then each verse begins with this cry out, this lament, this longing, this faithful hope that God would come into our darkness. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. God, be the one who is with us. We find ourselves many times in a situation where we look around at our reality or we experience things in our emotions or we experience things in our body. We experience things in relationships or in circumstances of life where we don't know what else to say but come Lord Jesus. Tonight as we look at John 1, we're going to see that God did just that by coming in the flesh. Would you pray with me and for me as we get started? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from you tonight. God, we thank you that you have given us your word and your spirit and your people. God, thank you that you have not remained silent, but you have spoken. God, I pray that we would hear from your voice, hear from your spirit, hear from your word tonight. God, I pray that you would deliver a message for each one here that they need to hear. God, even with the smaller number that's here tonight, I can't know what each one needs to hear. But Jesus, you do. Spirit, we pray that you would speak what each one needs to hear here tonight. You knew exactly who would be here tonight, and you know what you want to say. God, I pray that you would speak, and it would be your words that we all hear here tonight. God, we pray that we would not just take these things in and feel better or um, have new things to think about or have a better Christmas in light of these things. But God, we want you to change our lives here tonight. 
we want you to send us out of here different than when we came in. That's something that each one of us needs. God, we thank you for your presence. We acknowledge your presence here, and we ask you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 1, Jeff and Marilyn just read it for us. John chapter 1, I'll pick up in verse 14 and read through 18, and we will um, talk about the verses 14 through 18 specifically. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. So we are going to take a look at each one of these sections or verses and get to the heart of what John is talking about here. So in verse 14, we read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's a lot to be said just in this first half of the first sentence. This word word that John is using in verse 14. He also uses it in verse 1. If we go back to the first sermon at the beginning of December, the first sermon of Advent, we remember that in John 1, 1, it says, the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by that Word. And that word, word, John is using it to talk about Jesus. But the word, word, logos or logos, it was one that Greek philosophers used. And it was the word they used to uh, describe a supreme being that was behind all meaning and importance in the world. They would use this word to describe that, that thing, that impersonal force to them that was the meaning and significance behind all of life. The thing that really all humanity has always been looking for. What's the meaning? What's the purpose behind everything? That innate knowledge that there's something out there that is bigger than us. Here John uses the word again, and he says that word, that logos, is not an impersonal force, but it actually, the word, took on flesh. The word became flesh. He is throwing out the idea of what the Greek philosophers talked about, about an impersonal being. And he is saying this being, this of utmost importance, this that carries the most meaning, took on flesh. And John uses that word flesh very intentionally here. He could have said that the word became a human, and it would have been accurate. Or he could have said that God came in a body, and it would have been accurate. But here he says, the word became flesh. He uses a crude word in the Greek that means just flesh. The flesh that you touch when you touch your own arm. God came in the flesh. He came in the flesh. And he came in the flesh just like you and me. Through the miracle of the Holy Spirit, Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, she carried Jesus in the flesh, in her womb, just like you and I were carried in the womb of a woman. And then Jesus passed through the birth canal of a woman. You can't get more of the flesh than that. 
I don't know, in this room there's not as many as there was this morning when I was in North Liberty, but some of you may have been there to watch a birth take place. And when a human is born and comes through the birth canal, it is weird. (laughs) It is really weird. It's beautiful and all that. Everyone told me it was so beautiful, but it's also weird. It's a strange thing to behold. One of our kids uh, came out and his face was all still scrunched up like this. And his lips were really big. And I'm like, oh, he's here. I hope that gets fixed. <laughs> Just didn't look right. Poor child did not look right. He looked very fleshy. Very fleshy. When we watch the, the Jesus movies, this cracks me up. The nativity story is the worst one. It's a great movie in every other way, but Jesus comes out and he looks 12 months old. He's white and has perfect skin. It's like, first thought, that was not the color of Jesus' skin. And no skin, no baby has that clear of complexion. That's crazy. When a baby comes out, they are very fleshly. Jesus came like that. Jesus came in the flesh. And then it says, he dwelt among us. Literally, he came and he pitched his tent next to ours. He pitched his tent in our neighborhood. He came and he dwelled. He tabernacled. He lived among us. And among us. John uses that phrase to say he came for people just like you and me. Just like John and the people that were receiving this letter. Just like you and me. Uh, let's think about the Christmas story and some of the first to hear about the coming of Jesus. Let's think about his earthly parents, Joseph and Mary. They're from a village outside of a village. They're out in the sticks. They're people of no means of their own. Then the birth announcement is given to lowly shepherds who are unclean, out taking care of unclean animals, and they're told that Jesus is born. A couple years later, three Gentile kings come and give gifts to the newborn king. God came for people just like you and me. So God, this word, became flesh and dwelt among people like you and me. That's really good news. He came to live among people like you and me. Let's move on to the next section here. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word glory, it means thing of most weight. That he is the thing of most weight. And we have seen his glory. The full picture of his glory. This was new. In the Old Testament, they saw a foreshadowing of his glory or part of his glory. Think of Moses being on the mountain and God saying, I can pass by you. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to go past you and you're going to see my back. You're going to see a part of my glory, but you can't handle seeing all of who I am. And here it's saying that Jesus is the only son of the Father. And when we see him, we see glory. We see the full weight of who God is. And Jesus, it says here, he's the only son of the father. In the Jewish culture, the oldest son got the largest inheritance. And if you're the only son, you get all of the inheritance. Jesus inherited all of the glory of the father because he himself is God as well. And it says here that he is full of grace and truth. 
all the grace, all the truth that you or humanity could ever need is found in Jesus. Full grace, full truth. We have the ability to give a little bit of grace. We have the ability to give some truth. But it's always tainted by our humanity. Not Jesus. He was full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, verse 15, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Again, in the Jewish culture, coming before someone is of greater honor. John the Baptist, Jesus, they're distant cousins, but John the Baptist is a little bit older. He says, hey, Jesus was born after me, but really he is of greater honor because he is eternal. He came from the side of the Father and came in the flesh. That's what the disciple John is saying here about John the Baptist. That Jesus, yes, he was born in the flesh, but Jesus was also that word that we see in John 1, 1, that he's been here from the beginning, that all things were made by, through, and for him. He is eternal, but yet comes in the flesh. This is captured so well in a children's book that we read to our kids. It's called The Song of the Stars. It's by Sally Lloyd-Jones, who also wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible. She has a great way of communicating theology with just beautiful pictures. And this book, Song of the Stars, it's a Christmas book, but it's really uh, a picture, an illustration of Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64 uh, talks about what happens to creation when uh, God comes in the flesh. Well, this book, Song of the Stars, it's all these animals running towards the manger to see the newborn Jesus and every step they take is making noise and it's all a noise of worship a a song that worships God and the very last scene the very last page is Jesus laying in the manger and all the animals have arrived and they're looking into the manger and worshiping the the baby worshiping Jesus and it very simply says this heaven's son fell asleep under the stars that he had made It's a great picture of what John is talking about here with Jesus. Jesus made the stars, but he also came in the flesh and lived under those stars and lived among his creation. Verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. When we hear grace upon grace, we can tend to think that that means double grace. And I am like, well, double, that's better. Double of something is, is good, right? Like, kind of like a cheeseburger. Like, cheeseburger's good. Double cheeseburger's even better, right? That's not what John is talking about here. Um, I've, a commentator has a really great way of saying what the Greek is communicating when it says grace upon grace. And so I'm just going to put it up on the screen so I don't completely butcher it. Um, Andreas Kostenberger says this, when he says grace upon grace, when John writes grace upon grace, he is speaking of a continual, rapid succession of grace with no break between intervals. That's the grace that I need. That's the grace that I need in my life. And I think that you do too. Because like the psalmist in King David in Psalm 51, I feel like my sin is ever before me. 
I just keep seeing new areas of sin. I keep seeing areas where I'm tempted and I need grace upon grace with no break in receiving that grace. We have received that grace from Jesus. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here, John is speaking of the old and the new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 3, we are told that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. And he is worthy of more honor because Moses is a builder working on God's house. But the foundation and builder of all things is God goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 3, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We read when we read in scripture that because of the flesh that we are born into, our natural sin nature, the flesh that we are born in means we are born in the line of Adam. That that is our natural heritage is being in the line of Adam. But in Christ, when Christ's righteousness is appropriated to us and his spirit, the spirit of the living God, comes and lives inside of us. We are now in the line of Jesus. We have now been adopted into the family of God through what Christ, our older brother, has done for us. Look with me at John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Through Christ, we are born of God. That's what John is trying to convey here to us. Look with me at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. This term, at the Father's side, literally means at the bosom of the Father. That Jesus has come from the side of the Father. Has come from an intimate relationship with the Father, described in verse 1 of John chapter 1. And that Jesus has left that to come to us to offer a relationship with the Father that's like that. So you and me can have a relationship with the Heavenly Father that is like the one the Son has with the Father. What an incredible offer of life. What an incredible relationship that we are invited into. So with these things in mind, let's summarize what we have read here. First, Jesus is God. From beginning to end in John chapter 1, we have seen that Jesus is God, fully man, but fully God. Next, we see that God lived among us. He took on flesh and dwelt among us, people like you and me. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. I knew that was going to happen. I should just stay put, right? Um, you guys saw it come in and I didn't. It's like, oh, I thought a bat was back in this room. Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest that can sympathize with weakness. He can sympathize with our weakness because he has been tempted in every way. 
Jesus has faced the temptations we face. Jesus has suffered physical pain like we suffer physical pain. Jesus has experienced relational pain. Jesus has been treated unjustly. We see Jesus experience the things that we experience and he can sympathize with us. But Hebrews 4.15 says that he was tempted in every way, yet he was without sin. He was tempted in every way, but he overcame that temptation. He struggled and had pain in every way, but he persevered even unto death on the cross. He was put to death. He died in the flesh as you and I will, but he rose from the grave. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, that came and lived among his creation, and the flesh that he created actually put nails through his flesh and hung him on a cross. The one who made us, the one who created everything, has also suffered on our behalf, but he also overcame the grave. And we can see through the scripture that in Christ we find everything that we need. So this all looks great, but one remaining question is how? How are all these things true? How can we remember that in Christ we have everything that we need? Because I forget all the time that in Christ I have everything that I need. I often feel like I do not have everything that I need. I often feel like I do not have the strength, the energy, the wisdom, the stamina, the perseverance for what I need. Sometimes it's big things like to to do what God has called me to do as a pastor or as a father or a husband. Other times it's like, okay, gotta go home after I preach and put the kids to bed. After the babysitter's been giving them cookies for two hours. I just feel like I don't have enough. You ever feel like you just don't have enough? You just don't have what it takes for what God has asked you to do. Or maybe you're in the middle of something particular, something challenging that's taking place that's out of the ordinary where you're just like, I don't have what it takes. I don't have the answers. I don't have the strength. I don't have the wisdom. I don't know how I'm going to make it. Maybe others' choices have affected you in a way where you don't know how you can survive. Maybe others' evil and sin against you have left you in a place of hurt and shame and damage and you don't know how you're going to get through. So how can we remember and how can it be true that in Christ we have everything that we need? Well, as we begin to explore that question and as we look at this idea of Jesus coming and dwelling among us and leaving his heavenly home to come and live among us, the idea of home comes up. It's something that we uh, think a lot about as humans as well. I think particularly most of us living in this town think a lot about home because a lot of us are away from home. A lot of us aren't from here. A lot of us have come here from other cities, states, or nations, or even continents. And we're sitting at a place in our life where we're wondering, what's home? What does home look like? It's even in our language sometimes. Sometimes I will say to someone who's been gone for a while, hey, welcome home. And they'll look at me like, I'm not really sure what that means. 
I'm not really sure if I was just home when I was with my family of origin or if I'm home here now or if I'm home where I live in the future. I don't know where home is. A lot of us are in a transitionary portion of life where we still spend time with biological family, but we're starting to think about having a family of our own or we do have a family of our own and we're like, what is home? What does home look like? For some of us, the idea of home is really, really complex or even hurtful. Maybe we've never had that sense of home, of comfort, of rest, of safety that comes in a physical place or with the relationships with those we are biologically connected to. And a sense of home is just something that we dream about, but we've never quite experienced. The idea of home is also in the Bible. And not just a physical dwelling, but the presence of God and being with God and God being with man. It's a theme that we can see throughout Scripture. And as I look at commentaries on John chapter 1, every commentator I read or looked into said that here John is referring back to some language and some ideas from Exodus 33 and 34. And in Exodus 33 and 34, we see God's people about to go into the promised land. The land that God has promised them. And through all their years of enslavement and all their years of wandering in the desert, they are now going to transition into the promised land. And they're given all these great promises. And Moses wants to know one thing. He wants to know if God will be with them. God, will you go with us? We are not going without you. He wants the presence of God to go with him. Because he knows that's the one place that feels like home. In Ezekiel 37 and Leviticus 26, we see the promise that one day God would dwell with his people permanently. And this was a promise and a hope for the future because in the Old Testament, that's not the way it happened. God's presence moved around. It was in different places. It was in the tent of meeting. It was in the temple. It was on a mountain. It was with God's people. People were exiled from God's presence. God's presence would move. God's presence would lead. God's presence would be behind. It would, be, it would change based on the circumstances of God's people or the location of God's people. But in God's word, he promises that one day we would permanently be in the presence of God and him in our presence as well. John chapter 1 shows the realization of what the Old Testament anticipates. God comes and dwells. Back to that language that we found here in John 1.14. God took on flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, glory as from the Father, the glory, the presence, the grace and the truth of who God is coming and living among his people. And then Jesus comes in the flesh. He lives among those whom he created. He lives a perfect life. He's tempted in every way, yet is without sin. And then the very ones he came to save put him on a cross. He dies in our place. He takes the punishment that we deserve for our sins. His death. He gives us his righteousness and he receives the death that we deserve for our sin. Then three days later, he rises from the dead, showing that he is God. He ascends to be at the right hand of the Father in the flesh. He sends his spirit to live among us. And now the New Testament calls that spirit that lives among us the first fruits of our redemption. It's the first fruits 
of home. Because God came and he dwelt among his people, but his spirit comes inside of us and reminds us that we aren't quite home yet. And in Revelation, we read that the dwelling place of God is now with man. One day, we will fully be in his presence and he will be in ours for all eternity. And nothing will get in the way of that. Sin and death and suffering and physical and relational pain will be no more. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. We will have everything we ever need. And no matter how complicated the idea of home or family or our conception of who God is here on this earth, we will see him and we will be with him and he with us for all eternity. This has great implications for our life and that's where we'll close here tonight. Taking a look at the implications of Christ coming in the flesh. Because Christ came in the flesh, you can have a joyful Christmas. I can't promise you a happy Christmas. I can't promise you a happy evening this evening, a happy Christmas break. I don't know what the future holds for you or for me. I can't promise you that by the end of Christmas Day, you're not going to want to move away from all of your family and never see them again or take all your kids' Christmas presents back. I can't tell you that Christmas is going to be happy. I can't tell you that that physical pain that you're experiencing will ever go away. I can't tell you that that relational pain you're experiencing will ever be fixed. I can't tell you that you will ever have a sense of home here on this earth. I cannot promise you happiness and neither does God or his word, but we can have joy. The angels announced to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. We can have joy at Christmas. No matter how complicated, stressful, or painful it is for you, you can have joy at Christmas. Second, God understands. God understands what you're going through. Each of us have such unique stories and experiences and feelings and thoughts about what's going on in our lives. And really no one understands. We try to gain better understanding and empathize and sympathize with each other and understand and hear where each other are coming from. We can't really understand because we've lived one life. And we've filtered it through so many different things that we really can't understand where someone else is coming from. But God, the one who made you, the one who made everything, the one who holds history and eternity and salvation and life and death in his hands, he knows. He understands. He knows what you're thinking this very moment. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what Christmas has in store and the year 2020 and every year after that. He understands. And lastly, remember that God is with you. Because Jesus came in the flesh and his spirit can now live in us when we are in Christ. He is always with us. God's presence with us wherever we go. I want to just show you, uh, this is from a book called With by Sky Jatheni. Uh, it's a book that's been very helpful to me personally, and he walks through the different ways we can live our lives. 
And he talks about these four different ways that we try to live our lives that really don't lead to peace and joy. The first one he talks about is life over God. That's where God is kind of subservient to us and we stand above God and our opinion on life or our will for our life rules the day. This leads to a lot of anger and a lot of other symptoms of things that we don't want to experience. We can live life under God, where God has us under his thumb and we are his slaves and we just do what he tells us to do and there's, there's no joy in it. It's very mechanical, it's not relational, and this leads to a life of fear and shame that we're never going to measure up and be who he's called us to be. We can live a life from God where our whole life is what can I get from God? What can I get out of my relationship with God? What are the feelings I want? What are the things I want? The material possessions I want from God? He's the cosmic Santa Claus or the vending machine where I just ask him for what I want and I try to get what I can from God. This leads to entitlement or it leads to discontent. Or we can live for God, where the things that we do, the actions of our life, we do because we feel like we are working for God. It sounds and feels very noble. In fact, when my kids ask me who my boss is, I tell them, Jesus is my boss. I literally work for God. Working in a church and a plurality of elders, I work for the congregation. I serve the congregation. I serve my fellow elders, but really I work for God. I really do. And I take a lot of my identity in that. And I've spent a lot of my time trying to live for God and do great things for God. And I'm sure that you have considered that language as well. But really it leads to burnout. When we try to do it in our own strength, when we try to do great things for God out of our own strength, because we want to feel good about it, it leads to a place of burnout. Really the only way to live life is with God and he with us. It brings the peace and the joy that we are looking for everywhere else. It can only be found with remembering that he is with us. One of the biggest narrative plot points in my life has been dealing with anxiety. It's something I've dealt with in some form my whole life. And I've seen victories and I've seen defeats. It's been kind of a roller coaster that I felt like I've been on. And the last 10 years, I've seen a lot of victory over it, dealt with a lot of it when I started having kids and didn't want to pass it on to them. But not so in the last two years. In the last two years, it's been really hard. And there's been times when that anxiety is crippling. I just can't get past it. And in those moments of anxiety, what I'm trying to do, this is the way it works for me personally, is I'm trying to solve everything. I'm trying to figure everything out. I'm trying to solve every problem, get past every difficulty, uh, think about every eventuality, think through what could go wrong, think through how I'm going to tackle different things. It can be little things like where are my keys and did I set my clothes out the night before? Do I have clean clothes? It can be the littlest thing. But my mind is always racing, trying to fix and solve all of these problems. And you know what? My anxiety has never fixed anything. I've never figured anything out just by thinking about it. I don't just sit in a room and think about all my problems and then I'm like, oh, solved. 
And if I do solve a problem, and if I do figure something out, there just seems to be another anxiety behind the one that I just figured out. The only thing that's helped my anxiety has been thinking about the future and saying, God will be with me. God will be there. I don't know where I'm headed. I don't know how this situation is going to turn out. I still don't know where my keys are, but God is with me. God is with me. And it turns that anxiety into peace at the snap of the fingers. Because I remember that God is with me and he will be with me. He is always with me. His spirit is with me. The psalmist cries out, where can I go from your presence, O God? I couldn't run away from it even if I tried. That brings great peace in the middle of my anxiety. Philippians 4 says, do not be anxious. There's times in my life where I was like, yeah, right. That's not helpful to someone who's anxious. Just like someone who's angry. Stop being angry. That doesn't work. Just make them more angry. Think about not being anxious. I get anxious about my anxiety. But the Philippians 4 doesn't just say, do not be anxious. It says, the Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious. God is with me. So I don't have to be anxious. So for you, it may be a physical ailment, maybe family drama that's heightened at Christmas time, maybe something that's happened in your past, it may be the normal stresses and strains of life, maybe the you're not sure how things are going to turn out, maybe spiritual in nature, it could be any number of things that could steal your peace and joy today. I want to remind you that if you are in Christ, he is with you. He goes before you. He will be there in the future. He was there in the past. He is there with you today. That is the good news of great joy. That he's always with us. And because of what Christ has done, his spirit never leaves. He is right there with us. It is a fitting night to break the bread of communion together tonight. Thank you, Jesus, for coming in the flesh. Thank you that that flesh was ripped and torn for us. And thank you that in the future, we will experience the marriage supper of the Lamb with you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.